Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello there, history friends. My name is Zach Twomley, and this is the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Normally when I start these things, I like to let you know of the best way to support. Maybe I'll talk about the delegation game, where you can create your own delegate and send them to Paris. That is, of course, a very good thing to do, but I'm all about telling those that want to help for free about the best ways, well, to support and to help out this podcast. And one of the best ways you can do that is to go onto iTunes, write a nice review, and, well, well, yeah, just do that. If you want, you can tell other people about it, but really, that's a great thing to do, because it means the people who come across the podcast will see your review and will be like, oh, people actually like this show, so I'll go and listen to it. If you are aware of how iTunes reviews work, then you'll know that it's impossible to actually challenge them, which can be a bit problematic when certain people with certain opinions come along and say something not very favourable, and then the unfavourable review is kind of just stuck there and there's nothing I can really do about it. So in line with that, I thought I'd do this thing called Name and Shame. Well, it's not really Name and Shame because these people are using pseudonyms so we don't actually know their names. And maybe this comes across as a little bit bitter, but sometimes I get a bit annoyed because of the way iTunes works and, of course, the way people might misunderstand me or 
call me out on something and then, well, not really give me any chance to respond. So yes, name and shame. And I don't really buy the whole, well, you shouldn't be reading them out because if they put them on iTunes, then they're happy for them to be seen. So why wouldn't they be happy for them to be read out? In any case, this is an iTunes review left relatively recently, and it's by a guy called Jimbo5301, and the title is Too Clever by Half. Now, this is about the Korean War series we did, but this is just to give you an idea of the kind of stuff that When Diplomacy Fails is up against. If you weren't aware, our Korean War series was a slight bit unconventional, and we thought about things outside the box, but at no point did I ever say that anyone was, like, explicitly wrong or offend anyone in any way. I was very even-handed and I made sure of that. And I know that I was because, well, it's my show and I don't want to be very, very partisan or anything else. In any case, bear with me while we listen to Jimbo's review. So, Too Clever by Half is the subtitle. And he says, I've listened to nearly the entire series and enjoyed all but the Korea episodes. They were entirely too clever by half. I know as a history commenter, you want to give a fresh take on a topic. That's why the opinion of historical figures changes every generation. You don't need to do that. It's annoying. Coming on and telling us that all the smart people in the past were wrong, only the smart people now understand the issue, even though we're further away from the actual events and people who survived them. Stick to the style of your earlier work. The Korean War series was frustrating because of the one-sided nature of the arguments. Even I could have poked large holes in your arguments, but I can't have that dialogue in a podcast, so I often just stopped listening, or skipped those episodes out of frustration. You had a great style already. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Don't strain into issues that make me want to argue with you because I'll turn it off since I can't do that. So that's the review, and maybe you're thinking, well, Zach, this is a bit of a weird way to start this episode, and it is, because this is the Versailles Anniversary Project, but I figured, what better way to, well, make this call to action for iTunes reviews more effective than showing you the kind of dross that clogs up the iTunes reviews. It's not pretty, and this guy obviously has a problem with being told an opinion that isn't his own, which I've kind of noticed is a common thread. People don't necessarily care about me being political, they care what my political views, if I do ever express them, are different to their own. If my political views were similar to their own, they probably wouldn't even mind. Maybe this has come across as a bit of sour grapes on my part, but I'm pretty sure that those that left reviews like these have sour grapes of their own, so let's answer the sour grapes with more sour grapes. What could possibly go wrong? In any case, that guy saying that I'm too clever by half reminds me eerily of that guy who said that I need to understand I'm still a student and not think about things outside the box or give my opinion on stuff or even give my scholarly analysis of a topic and just to basically follow on with what everyone else is saying. What is really the point in being in any way historical if you literally just follow the lead of other people that were there before? You guys, and I myself, would like to think that as human beings we would like to challenge the consensus, to think outside the box, to think for ourselves, to weigh up the arguments that are there and pick the ones that we feel make the most sense based on the evidence. That's what history is all about, and I'm proud to say that I've done that in pretty much every series I've looked through. I understand the Korean War might rub people the wrong way, and it really does give me a hint of what would be to come if I ever decided to tackle the American Civil War, because I have my own opinions on that, which I'm not going to share. But there you go. This is a preview of the kind of stuff that's in the iTunes review feed, and if you would like to add your own very nice review to that, I would super appreciate it. Maybe even if it's not super nice, maybe it's just more logical and rational than this, accepting the fact that you might have a different opinion to me, but that since this is the well, this is planet Earth and people are guaranteed to not agree with you all the time. 
that's okay and I don't deserve two stars or a condescending review. Anyway, let's get into the Versailles Anniversary Project's latest episode before I get a bit more salty. If you would like to review this show, I would really appreciate it. Simply click on the link below or I believe you can do it through your Apple Podcasts app because according to my figures, most of you guys are listening to this show through an iPhone. So please go and review this show on iTunes. Okay, I will leave you alone now and just let you enjoy this latest episode. You are listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 15. Today is the 13th of December 2018, and on this day in history, 100 years ago, occurred the following events. In many respects, it was his vindication. President Woodrow Wilson's triumphal procession through the Parisian crowds spoke to a deep-seated belief in Wilson's core that his message of liberal peace ideals and a new world order was one which the peoples of the world were enthusiastically behind. To a degree, Wilson was correct. The American president did represent something fresh and new, something different from the nationalism, the competition, the conflict of old. To these cheering citizens, weary of war and desperate for a new start, what Wilson promised was as elusive as it was alluring. Indeed, it was so elusive that members of the American delegation had to petition Wilson to give them more information on the journey to the French port of Brest, so in the dark were they about the policies which the president intended to pursue. What Wilson would say was that his party was the only truly disinterested one at the conference. By that he meant that the Americans did not seek territorial aggrandizement or further settlements, which was true. Because of this status, Wilson insisted that he was the ideal candidate to bridge the gap between the different sides, the only man capable of guiding Europe away from its old habits and towards the new horizon which his vision represented. 
Popular, more generous interpretations of Wilson's track record in the Americas saw a president who intervened to protect democracy, to protect the free will of the peoples of Haiti, Mexico, Panama, or Nicaragua. Critics would point out that national interests accompanied and sometimes were hidden behind the louder, more savoury initiatives. The Panama Canal, for instance, was protected by American interventionism, as was the testy border with Mexico. I am going to teach the South American republics to elect good men, Wilson had exclaimed, but it remained to be seen whether Europeans would be so receptive or malleable. The man these French citizens enthusiastically, genuinely cheered was beaming and confident on the surface, but underneath this veneer, Woodrow Wilson struggled under the weight of the pressures which his vision forced him to bear, and which others had played no small role in exacerbating. Stress on a level and to a degree previously unknown to Wilson was soon to be his constant bedfellow, and yet the smiling, waving spectacle which the rapturous French crowds saw bore no hint of this strain. They saw only the promise of a new world which Wilson brought with him. They did not, as the president did, understand that this promise was far from an easy mission. Just before he left for Paris, with the weight of the world's expectation weighing down on him, Wilson confided in his private secretary, Joseph Tumulty, that This trip will either be the greatest success or the supremest, sick, tragedy in all history, but I believe in a divine providence. If I did not have faith, I should go crazy. If I thought that the directors of the affairs of this disordered world depended upon our finite intelligence, I should not know how to reason my way to sanity, but it is my faith that no body of men, however they concert their power or their influence, can defeat this great world enterprise, which after all is the enterprise of divine mercy, peace and goodwill. While he relied upon his faith and gave off, in the opinion of some, the vibe of a Presbyterian minister coming to save Europe, in reality, Wilson knew all too well that the task of making everyone happy was simply too great. He confessed on the journey towards Europe the following monologue which has later come to epitomise the great expectations and grim reality of all that Wilson was facing up to. It is to America that the whole world turns today, not only with its wrongs but with its hopes and grievances. The hungry expect us to feed them, the homeless look to us for shelter, the sick of heart and body depend upon us for cure. All of these expectations have in them the quality of terrible urgency. There must be no delay. It has been so always. People will endure their tyrants for years, but they tear their deliverers to pieces if a millennium is not created immediately. Yet, you know and I know that these ancient wrongs, these present unhappinesses, are not to be remedied in a day or with a wave of the hand. What I seem to see, with all my heart I hope that I am wrong, is a tragedy of disappointment. Indeed, even by pleasing some, he would deeply wound and offend others, and the balancing act was impossible to maintain when he was the only figure that truly had the power to make this vision happen. But did he have the power? One month before his hero's welcome in France, Wilson had made an ill-advised appeal to the American electorate in early November 1918 to empower his mandate by voting a majority of Democrats into both houses. According to Tumulty, Wilson's secretary, Wilson had acted on the recommendations of House, his close friend, 
and believed that openly, honestly asking for a democratic majority was preferable to scheming behind the scenes, to undermining his political opponents, as so many of his political predecessors had done and would do in the future. Wilson, it seemed, did not want to play politics. Instead, he determined to play to the people, and to trust that his message and mission would speak for themselves. It proved to be a disastrous miscalculation, and Wilson suffered his bitterest political defeat before he had even left for Europe. Instead of a mandate for Wilson's Democratic Party and its message, the electorate chose the opposite, and they voted to fill the Senate and House of Representatives with Republicans, individuals, by the way, who would never accept his radical plans for American involvement in this New World Order. As the historian D. Clayton James wrote, President Wilson was virtually obsessed with the crusade he intended to lead personally at the upcoming Paris Peace Conference, which was to set forth the terms of peace for Germany and to formulate the charter for the League of Nations. He wanted to act as the broker among the vengeance-minded Allied leaders in obtaining a fairer, more generous peace settlement than most of them desired. He also wanted to create an effective international organization led by the United States to ensure a post-war world that would be peaceful, free and no longer handicapped by secret treaties and balance of power considerations. When Wilson travelled to Paris in mid-December, however, several factors severely limited his chances of success. In November, the American voters had dealt him a major setback by repudiating his public campaign to elect Democratic majorities in both houses. His partisan manoeuvre renewed the vigour of the Republicans, who, after largely supporting the administration during the hostilities, won control of the Senate and House. While his ideological journey may have begun as early as his first presidential term, Wilson's physical journey to Paris had begun nine days earlier, when the George Washington had pulled out of New York Harbour on the 4th of December 1918 and proceeded towards the continent. On board were several ambassadors to the United States, a legion of administrative staff and, of course, the President himself, Woodrow Wilson. In this ideologue's mind, winning the peace was as important, if not more so, than winning the war had been. It is now my duty, Wilson had said, to play my full part in making good what they gave their life's blood to obtain. He would not have to try hard to find those that disagreed with him. Many indeed were at odds with his decision to travel to Europe in the first place. It was unprecedented and unheard of. His opponents insisted that his travelling there violated the Constitution, and even his peers feared it may place him in a difficult position. It was impossible for Wilson to do anything other than go in person, though. His vision for the New World Order required a personal touch. It could not be left to the likes of merely Edward House or his Secretary of State, Robert Lansing. Lansing was one of many sceptics among Wilson's own administration. As if sensing this, Wilson kept him consistently at a distance, and he rarely cooperated with him throughout the Paris Peace Conference. Lansing later brought these snubs forward and turned against Wilson's vision in Congress, serving as one of but many democratic nails in the coffin of Wilsonianism. Yet, Lansing's cynicism was well-founded. In his single-minded quest to realise his vision of a new world order, the President was often reduced to ignoring certain facts and also confusing his peers to no end, as we will see. Even established facts, Robert Lansing said, were ignored if they did not fit in with his intuitive sense, this semi-divine power to select the right. 
His own staff, as we saw, required clarification on the American policies which they would be expected to fight for in Paris, and the Allies were in a similar boat. The notion of self-determination proved to be the most enduring mystery. It was never, and it is still not, entirely clear what Wilson meant by it, and any requests for clarification fell on deaf ears. Yet Lansing was not so resentful that he did not appreciate the impact which the adoring crowds had on the President's sense of mission and psyche. As the Secretary of State noted in one of his many accounts of the Paris Peace Conference, this one published in 1921, the effect of such praise was only to be expected on a man like Woodrow Wilson. Lansing wrote, No man ever received a more demonstrated welcome than did Mr. Wilson from the moment that the George Washington entered the harbour of Brest. It was a great popular ovation. His name was on every lip. Throngs of admirers applauded him as he entered the special train for Paris and at the stations en route, and multitudes, delirious with enthusiasm, cheered him a welcome as he drove through the flagged streets of the French capital in company with President Poincaré, who met him at the Guerre Bois de Boulogne. It was a reception which might have turned the head of a man far less responsive than the president was to public applause, and given him an exalted opinion of his own power of accomplishment and of his individual responsibility to mankind. It is fair, I think, to assume that this was the effect on the president. It was the natural one. Like the 14 points, self-determination was the idea or set of ideals which anyone could interpret as they liked. It was never obvious or straightforward, and served to bolster oppressed nationalities as much as it seemed to promise unending conflict in regions where the national spread was less clear-cut. Wilson was infamously selective in his application of the idea, ignoring the requests of people in the Middle East, who were not believed ready to rule themselves, and effectively kicking out the nationalist Irish delegation that had travelled to Paris with such high hopes. When the President talks of self-determination, what unit has he in mind? Robert Lansing asked. Does he mean a race, a territorial area, or a community? It will raise hopes which can never be realised. It will, I fear, cost thousands of lives. In the end, it is bound to be discredited, to be called the dream of an idealist who failed to realise the danger until it was too late to check those who attempted to put the principle into force. If only nations qualified for the self-determination idea, then what qualified as a nation? Why did Poland put not Ireland? Did Wilson mean complete independence or just a right to elect their leaders? Was it a call for independence, or maybe was it just a call for democracy? Wilson either did not know himself, or he did not wish to limit his options or appeal by making the distinction. The result was that his vision had a broad appeal, but it also left many puzzled and liable to make conflicting claims with their peers. As Wilson would soon discover, the notion of nationality was not even clear-cut in certain regions of Europe, where an even split of sometimes as many as three or four distinct identities lived side by side and had done for centuries. What could the solution be for the Belarusian farmer caught between the crumbling Russian Empire on the one hand, the emerging Baltic states on the other, and the resurgent Polish or Ukrainian states on the additional hands? That same Belarusian farmer's response to the questions of where he was from or what identity he subscribed to spelt this problem out as clear as day. I am a Catholic of these parts, was all he could say. While we may not be surprised to learn that Wilson did not know exactly what he was getting himself into or how long he would stay in the French capital, what is surprising today is precisely how disorganised the whole concept of a conference was. The American president, bizarre though it sounds, 
had completely the wrong idea of the kind of conference he was about to attend. It was, Wilson believed, merely a preliminary conference, a chance to meet his European peers and hammer out a schedule. The outlines and major principles of the piece would be reached, and then Wilson would return to America. The world leaders would write the guide, and the minor officials and bureaucrats would then follow it. There would be no need for a man of Wilson's stature to stay in Paris indefinitely until the final peace arrangement with the German enemy was signed. This false impression of even the type of conference they were attending was captured in all its incredible starkness by Harold Nicholson, one of the senior British Foreign Office clerks in attendance, who later provided us with perhaps the most accessible and fascinating personal memoirs of the event, Peacemaking 1919. We've seen it several times, and we will be seeing it several times again. In this case, though, when talking about the muddling over the nomenclature of what kind of conference this was going to be, Nicholson recalled, During January, February, and the first half of March, for a period, that is, of more than ten weeks, the rulers of the world were completely unaware whether the treaty that they were discussing was to be negotiated or imposed. It may seem strange indeed that this essential consideration should not have been examined from the outset and from the outset decided. The original idea had certainly been that there would be a preliminary treaty, the terms of which would be settled in advance as between the victorious powers. This treaty, which would be imposed upon the beaten enemy, was to have contained merely the terms of military and naval disarmament, as well as the main lines of the future territorial settlement. All other deals were to be elaborated at a subsequent conference, at which the enemy would be represented and at which they would have occasion to advance counter-proposals. This incredible fact, and a forgotten fact really, spoke not merely to the overall disorganisation of the Paris Peace Conference, but also to the consequences of making it all up on the fly. As the rest of Europe seemed to unravel, the pressure was piled upon those at Paris to act, and the supposedly preliminary treaty was eventually folded into the final treaty, Yet this was all done so quickly that the Germans never got a look in. Indeed, a large part of the reason that the Germans were kept in the dark in the first place was due to this oversight. Germany's lack of say in the final version of the peace terms was due more to disorganisation than malice, as Nicholson insists. Notwithstanding this hiccup, which we will return to in the future, Woodrow Wilson's mission was one of P.R. He was tasked with meeting each of the Allied associates in turn before he returned to Paris in mid-January to gather the nations around the American direction. The British and then the Italians were on his itinerary, but first the President made some effort to bask in the warmth of the French, a warmth which could not last once the citizens realised how flawed and, well, brittle Wilson's mission was. For now, though, Paris was an ally, and Wilson was eager to soak it all in. Before the train to Paris was boarded at 3am on the 14th of December, though, Woodrow Wilson arrived at Brest in the late afternoon of the 13th of December. On this day 100 years ago, Wilson was greeted with crowds of Breton citizens who did not care much for technicalities, and who wanted to believe in the message that the President was peddling. These citizens were far from dupes, and they were not the only ones caught up in the promise of the President's vision. Civil servants and diplomatic officials from Harold Nicholson to Sir Maurice Hankey were captivated, the latter even carrying a copy of the 14 points with him wherever he went. If you've never heard of Maurice Hankey before, then get used to that name, because Hankey would later serve as the de facto agenda-setter for the tumultuous meetings between the Big Four and Three in the spring of 1919, and... Hankey's patience with Wilson would wane in time. 
a month after the signing of the armistice, with Europe caught between feelings of profound relief and exhaustion on the one hand, and the precipice of revolution on the other, Wilson seemed like their best hope. He'd even brought a rare glimpse of the November sun with him to this often stormy port. In the mood of optimism, as the world seemed to be closing ranks in the name of higher ideals, political creeds were tossed momentarily aside. The right could laud the American efforts to save them from German militarism, and the left could marvel at the brave new world which Wilson intended to make. Posters on the walls of towns celebrated the president's arrival. We are so thankful that you have come over to give us the right kind of peace, noted Stephen Pichon, France's oft-forgotten foreign minister, and the guy who would pretty much host much of the earlier meetings in the Paris Peace Conference. Without saying very much of anything, keeping his cards close to his chest, Wilson maintained the all-pleasing illusion and left breast in his rearview mirror for the true main event in Paris. Amidst the rapturous reception in the French capital, Wilson was reunited with his trusted advisor, who he had sent in late October to arrange a suitable armistice, Edward House. Clemenceau and Raymond Poincaré, France's premier and president respectively, met him off the train as well. The most remarkable demonstration of enthusiasm and affection on the part of the Parisians that I have ever heard of, let alone seen, recalled one American resident in the city. Crowds of jubilant onlookers lined the route to catch a glimpse of Wilson and his wife in their open-topped car, as soldiers did their best to keep the crowds back. It was as though Paris was celebrating the end of the war once more. Wild cheers greeted Wilson all the way to the Champs-Élysées, and a vast crowd remained outside for several hours, chanting his name. That evening on the 14th of December, exhausted from the day's festivities but no doubt on a high, Wilson enjoyed a quiet dinner with his family. In spite of everything, his doubts and political setbacks, he seemed to have found solace in the people of Europe, as he had always suspected and hoped that he would. Little could Wilson have known that this was soon to represent a bittersweet moment in his career. The arrival in Brest on the 13th of December, and the triumph through Paris on the 14th of December, 1918, may have seemed like the vindication of all his hopes and dreams, but this reception was also the high point of the President's experience. He would never be so popular in Paris again. And as he settled into the meat of his mission, it became apparent that the love on display had been conditional, based on the weighted expectations that only a traumatic four-year war could bring, and the impossible promises which a foreign leader had offered. Now that he was on the top of the mountain, there was nowhere for Woodrow Wilson to go but down. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.